The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, one of the uh, first episodes in the uh, Pharmacy to Dose archive uh, was with Casey May discussing aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. And we've had two guideline updates on this topic in the last three months. So we had to invite her back to discuss these recommendations. What's changed? Were there things that weren't covered? What are future directions? Research ideas. That's exactly right. We toss it out for our researchers out there and much more. Um, now, as a quick aside, so Casey is neurocritical care pharmacist. She's in the Neurocritical Care Society, uh, the pharmacist group. And I visited the meeting for the first time, and I am not going to lie. I don't think it gets the love that it should. Uh, instantly moved into a top four meeting for me. Uh, great topics. Um, awesome. Um uh, highlights like multidisciplinary, um, most of the panels. I thought there was, I mean, the pharmacists there are just awesome. Tons and tons of names you've heard if you're if you're a listener. Um, you know, I went for one day this year. I think I'm going to have to return for the, the full trip. Uh, now, only beef, right? Little beef. Arizona in August is just not, man, if you're in Phoenix, if you're listening to this in Phoenix, uh, my respect for you is through the roof. Uh, if you saw me in neurocritical care, you you heard this joke. I think it's so good. I'm going to have to say it again. It was literally so hot. I feel like as I walked in, I was like the villain in Terminator 2. It was just a pile of like puddle of liquid um, because it was just so, so hot. But that's not where they're going to be next year. One time thing. Um, not a sponsor, but just wanted to shout out after a great trip. Now it's time for part two updates in the management of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage right now. And joining me now, our special guest today, Casey May. Now, Casey is a clinical associate professor at the Ohio State University College of Pharmacy and a neurocritical care pharmacy specialist at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. She's on Twitter or X, whatever we're going to call it. I don't think we've come to a complete conclusion yet at Casey May PharmD. Casey, welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I, long time coming for the listeners. We've had a couple reschedules, but it, it, we we are here now recording. Very excited. Now for the the listeners will know from the intro, the one of the first episodes ever, the initial aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage episode. Now our discussion today, all right, part two. We're going to be incorporating guideline recommendations from both NCS guidelines for the neurocritical care management of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage and the AHA ASA, right? The 2023 guideline for the management of patients with aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. So basically two guidelines, and we're going to be focusing on that, those neurocritical care society guidelines, but we'll point out big differences or points from that other AHA ASA guideline when appropriate. So Casey, when, as we're kind of getting into this, right, we're comparing the 2012 AHA ASA guidelines to this 2023 update, the 2011 NCS guidelines to the 2023 update. So we're going to get into all these changes. We probably assume that there's like a treasure trove of new information. Is this uh, is this true or false? <laughs> I think this is ultimately false. Um, although there has been some notable literature published, thinking here like stash for statins and ultra for antifibrinolytics. 
I would say that when looking at aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage broadly, unfortunately, we do not have any practice-altering evidence to discuss today, um, although these guidelines were definitely needed um, to help us identify, you know, further areas of research. So did the scope of the guidelines change? Are we looking at the same patient population or, or what has changed with all these differences? Yeah, we are talking about the same patients, but the 2011 Neurocritical Care Guidelines was a landmark document and was the first to provide evidence-based recommendations focused entirely on the critical care management of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage patients. Now, these 2011 guidelines are different when compared to the Comprehensive American Heart Association and American Stroke Association joint guidelines published in stroke for the entire care continuum of these patients. But it's important for us to know that although we are focusing on the guidelines for the neurocritical care management, as you discussed earlier, we will highlight some important things from the AHA ASA updated guidelines that were just published in July of 2023. Um, And then as a reminder, we are um, recording in mid-August of 2023. Um, We'll reference the AHA guidelines throughout, but the focus of this conversation is the neurocritical care guidelines, as you mentioned. Um, And this guideline is also looking at the critical care management of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage patients, but it is also focusing on a handful of very specific questions, which gets me into kind of the methodology um, that you kind of hinted to before. The big difference between the 2011 and the 2023 neurocritical care guideline is that the methodology has changed greatly. The Neurocritical Care Journal also published a commentary, which I think you'll be able to link, Nick. But in short, they're using the GRADE methodology, which stands for Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. Here, they really limit their literature evaluation focuses onto 12 management questions, thought to be the most impacted by new evidence and evolving management paradigms in the past decade. The GRADE guidelines are developed around specific clinical questions in the PICO format, which stands for Population, Intervention, Comparison, and Outcomes. By using the PICO system, you really narrow the scope and shift away from these sweeping reviews of all aspects of disease management. Um, Then a comprehensive systematic review is conducted to address each PICO question. Um, In contrast, that 2011 document was based primarily on consensus-based approach of the literature evaluation. Um, And lastly, I'll mention that the GRADE methodology recommends that panels base the choice of outcome on what is important, not specifically the outcomes that are measured in the specific trial. Therefore, for these guidelines, the panel focused on clinical outcomes, including functional outcome, mortality, and occurrence of delayed cerebral ischemia, and complications of therapy rather than some surrogate, you know, physiologic outcome. And that's a really good point. Um, we'll definitely link in kind of the the um, PDF that you mentioned because that document that kind of talks about the perspective on methodology and, and guidance, that PDF ends with this really cool phrase that um, the Neurocritical Care Journal is doing. And it, it basically says, hey, we know you're bummed that there's a lot of big areas that we didn't discuss. And that's just because of this new methodology. So they're actually publishing a series of articles talking about these key aspects that they that they couldn't necessarily make recommendations for in the guidelines, but that they have good review articles for the clinicians to kind of understand what the controversies are, where the areas that we need research, et cetera. So um, we're going to hit on a lot of these guidelines, but people that are interested want to learn more each month they're coming out with with documents talking about right the emergency medical management of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, they talked about the methodology, the hemodynamic management for prevention and treatment. So just a couple things. Um, it, a really cool undertaking. They understand the significance of this and the changes. So they're trying to help us out. So a really cool overview. Before we get into, Casey, probably one of the biggest changes in the guidelines, right? These blood pressure recommendations. Remind us, what are we hoping to achieve or prevent with blood pressure control? Why is this something that a lot of us think of first when we think of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage? Yeah, so when you think about blood pressure management in subarachnoid hemorrhage, it's really twofold. So first, you have that acute phase where they present with a new bleed. Here, we want to aggressively control their blood pressure on the lower side to ensure that we do not have a catastrophic rebleeding event. 
after the aneurysm is secured, our blood pressure management changes significantly, and we allow the patient's body to do what it wants with blood pressure. Um, the thought here is that if the body needs to, it will induce hypertension to ensure the brain is perfused if the patient develops cerebral vasospasm. So that's what makes these patients so fun and dynamic is one area of their management, blood pressure, changes from one day to the next. So in patients with that, with a ruptured, unsecure aneurysm, that classic acute presentation after the initial aneurysm rupture, what are our kind of general initial blood pressure targets for the prevention of rebleeding? Maybe what did our old guidelines uh, recommend? So the most recent, I guess, well, the older guidelines before these two new publications, they recommended a systolic of less than 160. Um, however, I would say in practice, the majority of us are actually targeting a lower goal, which is a systolic less than 140. Well played. Older definitely is a, is a <laughs> shot. So the, 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 the previous iteration, well, well said. <laughs> so why do the 2023 guidelines not have a specific blood pressure goal at all compared to those previous guidelines where you, you mentioned that they actually do have a goal? Yeah, at first glance, it seems pretty silly, right? Um, that there is insufficient evidence to recommend a blood pressure reduction goal for the treatment of hypertension before aneurysmal um, subarachnoid hemorrhage. Seems really, really silly. Yeah. However, the reason for the lack of specific recommendation is that this guideline, I think it's pretty simple. It's just based to that methodology of the GRADE and the PICO approach. The panel simply did not have the evidence to support a particular number. Additionally, they state that the quality of evidence was too low to support a target blood pressure versus no blood pressure reduction. And why do we not have literature around this topic, I think is a good question. But in my mind, I think that the practice of controlling blood pressure in that acute phase of an unsecured aneurysm is so ingrained that it simply would just be unethical at this point to have an unsecured aneurysm present and us not control their blood pressure at all. So... I guess when we think about a goal moving forward, perhaps it's not, you know, a blood pressure goal versus no goal. Maybe at, at this point we're looking at, is it less than 160 or less than 180 versus less than 140? Um, so perhaps that's, you know, what they're pushing us toward at this point. Yeah, that makes sense. The idea of somebody having a, a blood pressure of 190s and untreated and, and with an aneurysm subarachnoid, that doesn't feel ethical for a control group. So yeah, the there's going to be some differences. And you mentioned, right, both, both the NCS and those AHA guidelines, they talk about how in practice, this is what we do, but there's really not evidence to guide it. So they, they kind of have that both. Now, is does this mean that blood pressure reduction in general isn't helpful since they said that they can't recommend a goal? No, not at all. And the guidelines state that pretty clearly too. They know that although they are unable to provide a statement supporting a specific blood pressure reduction goal in these patients with an unsecured aneurysm, the absence of evidence for more aggressive blood pressure reduction from comparative study does not necessarily imply the lack of role of blood pressure reduction in the prevention of rebleeding. There's actually some data that elevated systolic blood pressures, particularly above that um, 160 number, has been associated with aneurysm rebleeding. But the evidence that controlling the blood pressure as part of a treatment protocol is actually pretty mixed. And I think the good part about this finding in the neurocritical care guideline, as you just alluded to, is the AHA ASA guideline confirms this finding that there is just insufficient evidence or data to recommend a specific target. But they state that when deciding on a target for blood pressure reduction, factors to appraise for that particular patient should include the blood pressure at presentation. Do they have any significant brain edema, hydrocephalus, or a history of hypertension and renal impairment to help you decide on what a specific goal should be for that patient? Okay, so we know blood pressure still matters. Now, do we know... Is it, is it low blood pressure hypotension? Is it hypertension? Is it our blood pressure variability? Like what matters most when, when thinking about the hemodynamic management in patients with aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage? I think this is a pretty complex question, actually. I think in the early phase prior to securing the aneurysm, we, we want to prevent hypertension. Exactly what that number is 
as the guideline state here, we, we don't really know. They bring up a good point that there is some evidence that increased blood pressure variability may be associated with increased risk of rebleeding and worse outcome after aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. And perhaps this is an area that we should look at investigating in the future. Particularly, we need to focus on if blood pressure variability early can affect functional outcomes. But hypotension is a, is a difficult issue to address. If the patient has a very severe bleed and is having ICP crisis, then we obviously are going to be very concerned about cerebral perfusion pressure. And we need to be more careful with how low the patient's blood pressure goes, particularly MAP, during that acute phase of illness. And we will we'll put a pin in hypotension because that'll come back with one of our one of our mainstays of treatment here. All right, let's put let's put you on the spot, Casey. So if you had to pick a blood pressure goal, right? The team comes to you, you're make you're in charge. All the things you want to happen are happening today. So you're making that blood pressure goal. What would you say is the most correct answer in your opinion? And it's the most correct answer, not the answer, because clearly we have two guidelines telling us we don't have a consensus number one so what's your best fit line (laughs) putting me on the spot for sure right now (laughs) in the acute setting I think avoiding hypertension is probably the right answer for me I'm gonna have to say a systolica less than 140 because that's how I've always practiced Um, and honestly most of the rebleeding that I've seen have not been you know prior to intervention Um, So it seems to have worked in my very small sample size. Um, But I think ultimately you have to be very cognizant of the patient in front of you and and what else is going on outside of just preventing that re-bleed event. So right now we've up to this point we've been focusing on the management of that ruptured acute unsecured aneurysm. So what recommendations do the guidelines make regarding hemodynamics or fluid management after the aneurysm is secured we've we've hit the target and we're not in that they haven't they're not in that acute phase where they're just hitting the door yeah and i kind of alluded to this earlier that our management of these patients changes drastically after we secure the aneurysm Um, and when it comes to thinking about other hemodynamic parameters, one of the things that we always think about in subarachnoid patients is their fluid status. And this neurocritical care guideline supports the current practice of avoiding liberal fluid administration. Um, Here, thinking about, you know, we're not doing that hypervolemia portion of Triple H therapy that was so common in the past. Um, And this is primarily due to the risk of pulmonary edema. Um, they mentioned that using targeted fluid administration to achieve euvolemia, which may include, you know, goal-directed hemodynamic therapy to reduce the risk of pulmonary edema, prevent delayed cerebral ischemia, and improve those functional outcomes. Um, this targeted fluid administration or goal-directed therapy has been done um, a few different ways. Um, here you're thinking about keeping a very narrow uh, euvolemia balance. You'll see plus or minus 500, plus or minus 750 mLs. Um, And this can be done through transpulmonary thermodilution-based algorithms um, or just simple eyes and O goals. Um, Although several types of fluid management have demonstrated improved outcomes, there is insufficient evidence to recommend a specific fluid management or hemodynamic protocol currently as it stands. The only consistent finding that we have from the literature is that liberal fluid administration increases the risk of pulmonary edema. And, you know, the AHA ASA 2023 guidelines also support this statement and agree that some sort of goal-directed treatment of volume status is reasonable to maintain euvolemia and that prophylactic-induced hypervolemia increases the rate of medical complications without improving the overall outcome or reducing delayed cerebral ischemia. Yeah, the the neurocritical care guideline kind of has language like we suggest against and things but the AHA ASA one is a comes out a little bit more against it right it's got the harm recommendation um, and so kind of putting their stamp on that now you you brought up Triple H and we're not referencing professional wrestling in the 1990s so <laughs> gotta ask a question so are there scenarios where we would acutely induce hypertension or augment cardiac output in patients with aneurysmal subarachnoid treatment, right? The other two, the other duo from that original Triple H treatment that you referenced there. 
Yeah, in current practice, after the aneurysm is secured, we would allow the patient to what we call auto-regulate, right? The AHA ASA 2023 guidelines state that prophylactic hemodynamic augmentation, so, you know, thinking increasing the blood pressure before the patient has signs and symptoms of cerebral vasospasm or delayed cerebral ischemia should not be performed because it, it can cause harm to the patient, right? So we don't prophylactically induce hypertension if the patient is for all intents and purposes, asymptomatic um, from those cerebral vasospasm sequelae. But if the patient is starting to have symptoms of cerebral vasospasm or delayed cerebral ischemia, then we would pharmacologically alter the patient's blood pressure to a higher systolic goal. These guidelines say that we do not have evidence for or against this practice, which is a change from the 2011 guidelines where they recommended a trial of induced hypertension. But this guideline simply says we do not know because the data is very mixed. They do state that if the practice is put in place, that we should be judicious and tailor to a patient-specific hemodynamic profile, which is what I currently see in my practice. You know, we'll have a patient who has um, a systolic of 120, let's say, and they start to develop um, clinical cerebral vasospasm, so meaning they have symptoms, um, what we would think of as stroke-like symptoms due to the vasospasm, then we would induce hypertension, probably go up by 20 um, points. So we might try to target a systolic of 140 and see if those symptoms go away. Um, so, you know, the opposite of that would be every patient after they have um, symptoms of cerebral vasospasm, then we automatically push to 180. And that's just not what we see in practice. And that's not what they recommend in this guideline. They recommend for you to look at the patient and kind of take that stepwise approach um, specifically to try to see if there's a, a patient-specific number that can help um, mitigate those sequelae of cerebral vasospasm. Yeah, patient-specific treatment is uh, is kind of a big emphasis um, in these guidelines, especially when after kind of um, when we're in the cerebral vasospasm kind of DCI phase, that was something that I, I kind of noted as well that you pointed out there. Um, now, listeners who turned in to the original aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, number one, if you haven't, this is the most up-to-date, but that gives a great, great background into a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. Definitely go back and listen. But they remember that nemotapine is that one pharmacologic therapy that we have, right? They studied it for cerebral vasospasms. They found that it can reduce that delayed cerebral ischemia. So is there any evidence to show that missed or held treatment worsens outcomes? Or is it simply, hey, we got that 21-day order set we, we have the order in there. We got it initiated. That's what matters. Or is it, hey, we need to be looking at the MAR, making sure we're, we're not missing doses as well? I'm not sure that we can say with confidence that outcomes are altered by Mr. Held nemotipine doses. The 2023 neurocritical care guidelines here say that they recommend the administration of oral nemotipine to patients with aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage to re reduce the delayed cerebral ischemia and improve functional outcomes, Right. But in this review, they also note that nemotipine leads to significant hypotension and may lead to dose splitting or held or discontinued therapy. Unfortunately, in the large randomized controlled trials that they review, patients that missed multiple doses of nemotipine were actually excluded from the study because of the protocol. Um, so they're not actually analyzed. So in short, we just don't know from our randomized controlled trials what happens in a situation when we're forced to hold or split doses. Um, there has been some retrospective studies that have noted poor outcomes with modified nemotipine regimens, but obviously these are retrospective studies and the analysis is highly confounded by selection bias due to the types of patients that would need nemotipine held. Um, but the AJA ASA 2023 guidelines kind of confirm this finding and recommendation as well. So that was good to see. So nemotipine is a calcium channel blocker. So, you know, what can ha what do we do if a patient becomes hypotensive secondary to that? Because it's got antihypertensive properties, right? I'm assuming that can happen. So what do we do in that scenario? It's really going to be based on the provider preference and what the institution is used to doing. So I've seen a lot of different approaches. Um, usually what you'll see is the lower that dose to the 30 milligrams every two hours. Um, and from my experience, the, the severity of hypotension that you see is very closely related to the dose and lowering to the 30 milligram 
dose, which would ultimately give you the same kind of daily dose, um, can be helpful for the management of hypotension. Now, if, if that doesn't help, some providers feel comfortable administering vasopressors while still giving the nemotapine. Um, I do this in my practice, and generally I do not recommend holding nemotapine unless we're approaching, you know, really high doses on one vasopressor or potentially to the point of discussing adding a second vasopressor to maintain um, either, you know, normal normal blood pressure or if we're already in that phase of, of pushing to a higher selected systolic blood pressure. So, do we know if switching or using alternate dosing regimens like worsens outcomes such as, you know, you mentioned the, the classic is the 60 milligrams every four hours. You had mentioned switching to 30 milligrams every two hours, which shout out the bedside nurses, by the way, every two hour administration sounds miserable, but do we know how the effect of switching those therapies and how that might affect outcomes? I think similar to holding doses, we don't actually know if altering the dosing regimens lead to worse outcomes. Um, all the randomized controlled trials use 60 milligrams every four hours for 21 days. And there have been some smaller retrospective studies that looked at, you know, abbreviated nemotapine courses, like discontinuing it at 14 days or on discharge. And there appears to, no, appears to be no impact on patient outcomes. However, again, I would say that there's a lot of selection bias into this, right? Because if you're willing to stop nemotapine on a patient, they're probably doing really well and have a low-grade subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't think we have the evidence to, to say that either altered alternate dosing regimens or alternate courses um, have different outcomes at this point. That's a really good point I hadn't thought about because I think, you know, you had mentioned most of the the larger studies, right, they, they use that standard and it would make sense, really the people you might be more comfortable making a small change to their thing are the patients that everything's gone smooth since they got in, right? So they're not having complications and things like that. So that, that does make sense. Now, one of the biggest issues, if, if you're in a neurocritical care unit is that nemotapine is only available as a enteral medication. So, from the enteral products, what difference exists between those different kind of oral formulations of nemotapine? Yeah, not many people know this, but there's actually a, a lot of variety available for formulations um, and a lot of differences in their practices for administration of nemotapine per a feeding tube. Um, there are capsules, there's the commercially available solution, and there's also tablets, um, which are mostly available outside of the United States. Um, a study actually led by Sharif Mahmood and in collaboration with the Neurocritical Care Society Pharmacy Research Group recently published in Pharmacotherapy um, where they were looking at various outcomes when using these various formulations as well as techniques of administering these agents. Um, the primary objective of their study was to compare the safety of enteral nemotapine formulations and administration techniques. They looked at various things like hypotension, incidence of diarrhea, which is most common with the oral solution, um, and then duration um, of diarrhea as well as hypotension and delayed cerebral ischemia. They included like over 700 patients and found that administration of nemotapine liquid was independently associated with a higher prevalence of diarrhea compared to other administration techniques or formulations. Um, and this is uh, not super surprising as there is a lot of glycerin actually in that um, oral solution, um, which we see a lot of diarrhea in our patients that have that liquid product. That um, also the bedside withdrawal of the liquid from the nemotapine capsules prior to administration was significantly associated with higher prevalence of nemotapine dose reduction or discontinuation secondary to hypotension. So here this kind of triggers me to think that for some reason, the nurses are actually, or when there's bedside, I guess, um, pulling out of capsules, they're somehow getting more um, in, or that delivery outside of the capsule hastens the absorption, obviously, um, of, of the capsule compared to the capsule when you pull out that liquid. Um, also, they found that tablet crushing and bedside withdrawal of liquid from the capsules prior to the administration was associated with an increased odds of delayed cerebral ischemia. Um, and the final 
finding was a secondary outcome, but it's also concerning that the differences in the type of formulation and administration um, can cause these differences in, in the, you know, the primary outcome of delayed cerebral ischemia. So although this is, you know, retrospective, I think it's great for us as pharmacists to think about this kind of stuff because we see this in our practice, but also it needs further evaluation um, because this, I think it's pretty concerning when we think about the variation in practice of especially administration across the United States. Um, and obviously Canada was included in this as well. If you gave us a chance to guess, um, I would have guessed the opposite, that we would have less effect when we were trying, because it's a liquid gel cap. For those who haven't seen, like it almost feels like an exercise in futility trying to draw it up. So the idea that that the, that the, the bedside nurses are able to get more out of that like a gel cap is almost more impressive. And this is, everyone should read this article, this pharmacotherapy. It's a, it's a who's who. So many friends of the pod throughout the author list. Um, Sharif Mahmood, I, I met him at the Neurocritical Care Conference. What a great guy from our friends across the pond in Canada. Um, but a, so essentially a multi-center study finding showing us that we do not have a perfect nemotapine um, product because one might give you a lot of diarrhea or one might increase your odds of delayed cerebral ischemia. So clearly efficacy and safety concerns with both understanding retrospective things, et cetera, but a really, a really big multi-center study from the Neurocritical Care Society Pharmacy Research Group. Now let's shift gears here a bit and talk about a pharmacologic intervention not mentioned in our original episode, antifibrinolytics. So what benefit did early studies of antifibrinolytics like tranexamic acid, aminocoproic acid, what did those, the treatments in aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage show? So in the 2011 guidelines, there were several recommendations for the use of antifibrinolytics based mostly on preliminary evidence demonstrating a reduction in rebleeding, but mixed, I would say, or absent results on the long-term outcomes. Um, some of the critique from the older studies is that some of the original studies looked at administering antifibrinolytics for as long as sometimes four weeks, um, so a pretty long time. Yeah, four weeks is is a minute. Now, um, has the use of antifibrinolytics, has it been shown to improve functional outcomes or even replicate those findings from the earlier studies? So I really think these 2023 neurocritical care guidelines do a very good job of summarizing a lot of the existing randomized controlled trials. However, the most compelling data are from two of the more recent randomized controlled trials, which evaluate shorter durations of the transexamic acid, or TXA. The first trial showed that TXA administration reduced the ultra-early re-bleeding rates, but it was not adequately powered to find any effect on those clinical outcomes. The second and most recent and largest RCT is the ultra trial, which concluded that ultra-early or short-term TXA treatment did not improve the functional outcomes of six months. Likewise, this trial showed no difference in the risk of rebleeding, mortality, or cerebral ischemia in that thromboembolic event complication rates between the two um, were similar as well. But the probability of an excellent functional outcome was lower in the TXA arm. So, you know, that should be pretty concerning for people when they hear that the the ability for a patient to have that excellent functional outcome was was lower if they received the treatment. And to pull in the new 2023 HA ASA guidelines on this topic, they agree that based on the current data, there is no benefit of using antifibrinolytic therapy in the routine management of patients in aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. They do state this disclaimer that we do not know the benefit in patients who aneurysm treatment will be delayed because of logistics. So let's say they show up to a, a hospital that doesn't have the ability to intervene on the aneurysm or for medical reasons. And so um, for some of us who've been practicing a lot for a while, we've seen patients be delayed because they're just too sick to go to the OR. They're just too sick to go have their aneurysm um, intervened on. And here you're thinking about patients who may present with like Takasubo um, or things like that can be very, very sick. And, you know, you're more concerned about 
their hemodynamic management and making sure they're stable before they can go and get intervened on. So I don't think, you know, we don't know what to do in those patients um, is kind of what the HA ASA guidelines um, discuss. But it makes sense that we would use the findings um, that, use TXA like we would use here, right? The idea of using one of these for four weeks is kind of nuts to me thinking back now. So this kind of short term, I think it was 72 hour course seems more reasonable. Now you mentioned those patients who are maybe delayed going to the angio suite, for example. So are there any other groups of patients that we might, that might be considered for antifibrinolytic use? Maybe are there a subset of patients that maybe weren't included in the ultra or some of those other trials where they're in the gray, we might consider using it. Um, that might keep it as kind of our treatment arsenal for that specific subset of patients. Honestly, I think the um, ultra trial is pretty inclusive. The only group that you could say that maybe would be included with, were those patients with a, a high or a favorable GCS, right? They excluded patients that had a GCS of 13 to 15. And they did this mainly to try to eliminate um, patients that they thought were likely to have a good recovery anyway. Um, you could maybe think that they would reevaluate it also in, in traumatic subarachnoid, which is outside of the scope of this discussion because we're talking about those aneurysmal patients. So perhaps that's an area. Um, but again, maybe even just focusing on those patients with delayed intervention. And sometimes that's hard to determine who those patients will be. Um, but maybe a good start is, you know, a patient showing up at a hospital that isn't able to intervene and we're having to transfer them. So maybe those are the patients that they want to look in in the future. Um, but I, I think for those of us who are practicing in the various areas, you may still have providers ask for this if they have, you know, that patient that they just can't get to surgery. And um, at this point, I don't, I don't know what the right answer would be, but I do think it is pretty concerning that we saw um, a reduction in, you know, those excellent outcomes in those patients that received the TXA. So I would be probably a little hesitant until we had more data. That's a really good practical discussion though, because that's one of those where, yes, the guidelines say this, but there are, there are some times or considerations where you might see it. So that's a, a really good breakdown of that. Now, a common phenomenon, right, in neurocritical care, just in general, is hyponatremia. Um, don't worry, Casey, we're not going through the neurocritical care algorithm of hyponatremia, but we know this can occur for a multitude of reasons. But my, my question specifically is, do we know what the pathophys of, of hyponatremia or a low sodium value in aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage patients specifically? This is a difficult question to answer because we really do not know what's causing the hyponatremia. Initially, it was thought to be an SIDH. However, most patients with aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, they cannot be treated with fluid restriction because that is the treatment of choice for SIDH um, because it can lead to, in these patients, not only severe dehydration because they're making a lot of urine output, um, but it can also lead to hypotension and the, our worst feared problem, which would be vasospasm, just due to that low um, volume depletion. Therefore, this is where we throw around the term cerebral salt wasting. Now, as a disclaimer, we do not know exactly what cerebral salt wasting is <laughs> or what it's caused by. Um, and some even dispute its existence, to be honest. Um, however, you know, in aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage patients, they seem to have hyponatremia secondary to increased naturesis, and it's possible that it's due to inappropriate elevation of atrial natriuretic peptide, or ANT, ANP, um, as a transient elevation of AMP has been reported in the literature. So that's our best guess on, you know, why at this point. What a perfect neurocritical care diagnosis. We, we don't know what it's caused by. We're not really sure what it is and some dispute that it's even really a thing. So I feel like that's hitting the holy trilogy of, of <laughs> requirements for a neurocritical care disease. And that's an important point you make of um, your volume status. You know, I think listeners are like, wait, wait a second. Fluids are bad, right? Well, it's they, the guidelines, it's all euvolemia, right? We're not, these aren't heart failure patients that so we're trying to make them net negative. So a really good point there. Um, the guidelines, I guess, maybe surprisingly specifically mention mineralocorticoids for hyponatremia treatment. So 
What's our evidence for using fludrocortisone specifically in aneurysmal subarachnoid patients? Is this a, is this a common practice? I would say it's a pretty common practice, but the evidence is slim, like anything else in neurocritical care. Um, but the the panel that did this uh, neurocritical care guideline actually found small four small randomized controlled trials on this topic. Um, two of those studies actually used hydrocortisone. The doses are, are pretty astonishing. Um, and then two used fludrocortisone. So I can break those down pretty briefly. Um, the two fludrocortisone studies, um, one study looked at using fludrocortisone in about half of their patients. They included 91 patients. And the dose there was the 0.2 milligrams twice a day. The other study included 30 patients, 15 of which um, received the fludrocortisone, and that dose was 0.1 milligrams three times a day. And both of these studies demonstrated a reduction in naturesis and less hyponatremia, and that was really the point of that study. So no long-term outcomes that were followed. Um, and then the hydrocortisone studies, there were, there were two there. So 14 out of 38 patients received hydrocortisone, and another included um, 71 patients, and half of those patients received hydrocortisone, so around 35. Um, both of these trials used a dose of 300 milligrams every six hours. So that's a total of 1,200 milligrams of hydrocortisone a day. Um, so thinking uh, even for those of, who, those of us who use hydrocortisone, you know, in septic shock, like these are astronomical doses. Um, but their point of targeting these was getting that um, about 0.3 milligrams per day of the fludrocortisone equivalents. Um, and these treatments obviously demonstrated that they prevented hyponatremia, but they did lead, non-surprisingly, to significant hyperglycemia. Um, and then there were two patients um, in, these, in these trials that developed a GI bleed. Um, I think both of these approaches might reduce the incidence of hyponatremia when started early in subarachnoid hemorrhage, but there's no evidence that you know, using the mineral corticoids or, I would even go further to say, preventing hyponatremia improves functional outcomes in these patients, um, which is really the focus uh, of, of those guidelines. Um, and then when you look at the HA ASA guidelines from 2023, they, they state that the use of mineral corticoids is reasonable um, to treat naturesis and uh, hyponatremia. 1,200 milligrams a day. Uh, that order would be sitting in the queue. Ain't nobody verifying that. Yeah. So um, the idea that that's our um, alternate dosing regimen. So, I mean, we have fludrocortisone. We have the gigantic whopping hydrocortisone dosing regimen, which is, yeah, I mean, of course they had some GI bleeding, right? You're giving someone 1,200 milligrams of this. So what is, what's your all's, it sounds like a lot of this is anecdotal. Um, so what would you say is your all's kind of preferred treatment regimen um, when kind of dealing with hyponatremia? You know, for us, a lot of this, um, it can be the naturesis, which leads to significant urinary output. So our first go-to is just back focusing on that euvolemia and managing volume. And so here, you know, depending on the sodium, we'll likely use normal saline in these patients, as you know, is not uncommon neurocritical care, um, or balanced fluids like plasmolite, um, and just keeping up with the eyes and nose and maintaining euvolemia. Now, if you can't keep up and it gets excessive with your urine output or you're significantly dropping your sodium, this is when we'll kind of go to you know, using 3% sodium chloride as your replacement fluid, um, and then ultimately trying fludrocortisone, the 0.1 milligrams TID is usually our starting dose. Um, and I've gone up to even as high as 0.2 milligrams three times a day for fludrocortisone. Um, but ultimately, it's not in my practice to start fludrocortisone, you know, on day one or two to get ahead of hyponatremia. It's more of a reactive practice. This isn't necessarily pre-checked on the on the order set. It's something that you're you're ordering in response to to things that may come on labs and things. That makes sense. Correct. So, so who knows? Maybe one day it'll be one of those pre-checked orders. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're talking about one therapy that's used a lot with not a lot of evidence. Let's talk about some more and some more of these adjunctive treatments. So um, is this is 
Casey, is this our time to do a eulogy for adjunct treatments like statins or IV magnesium? Or um, is this going to be like the Undertaker meme? Wow, look at this. Wow, we got two wrestling references in one episode. Is this going to be like the Undertaker where we try to bury him <laughs> and then it sits up? Right? Are we still going to be seeing some of these treatments as part of our aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage treatment regimens? Have we ever buried anything in critical <laughs> care, Nick? <laughs> Definitely not. It's like a pigeon. It's a pendulum, right? Today it's not cool. Tomorrow it will be. Um, I think that both the Neurocritical Care 2023 and the HAASA guidelines say that there is no benefit to improve outcomes with the routine use of statin therapy or IV magnesium for the management of cerebral vasospasm and delayed cerebral ischemia after aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. So have we buried it? Yes and no. I think that, you know, I don't think we'll see another big trial with statins or magnesium. Um, however, since we don't have a lot of great options for these patients, you may see IV magnesium pulled out of the toolbox in severe, you know, refractory vasospasm cases. Sometimes we get to a point in these patients that we have nothing else to do. And the fact that this wasn't harmful in these trials, we might as well try it, um, especially maybe if those patients have like low magnesium levels. Um, and then and switching gears a little bit to the statins, you know, again, we found that those weren't harmful, but they didn't improve that long-term outcome um, if in patients who develop cerebral vasospasm. So most people's approach is that if a patient came in on a statin, we're going to continue their home therapy. Um, and if they have some compelling indication while they're there, whether it's we got an LDL of 180 or, you know, for goodness sake, maybe they had an MI or something else, then we're going to, we know we can safely start the statins. But um, no, I, I don't think we've buried it, but I'm not sure we'll see, um, anything new come out in, in, in the next few years. Yeah. It's going to be like nineties fashion and, and we're going to be talking about it. Some big trial where magnesium suddenly saved. Yep. So put a pin in this, everybody. I'm sure Case and I will be talking about, uh, these very things being a, a new treatment of choice here, um, shortly. <laughs> um, now Casey's done a really good job of, of bringing in some of the kind of the compa- the two guidelines and what their recommendations are. But one of the biggest differences between these two guidelines, probably really the, the biggest you'd say other than the patients they're focusing on is related to the recommendations on the use of seizure prophylaxis. So what do, what do the two guidelines recommend or state regarding this recommendation? Yeah, so for the 2023 neurocritical care guidelines, it's completely absent. So it wasn't one of their PICO questions, and so they just did not dive into the literature about this. Um, But I do think that the updates in the AHA, ASA guidelines are important to highlight because there are some significant updates that that they um, recommend compared to their earlier um, guidelines. Um, So the, the old guidelines state, uh, for the AHA-ASA state that the use of pro- prophylactic AEDs may be considered in the immediate post-hemorrhage period. Now, the new AHA-ASA guidelines state the use of prophylactic AEDs may be reasonable to prevent seizures in patients with those who have high-risk features. So this is kind of a new thing that they kind of bring in. Um, and further, they say that there's no benefit in using AED prophylaxis in patients without those high-risk features high-risk features. Yeah, if you control F, the Neurocritical Care Society guidelines, that literally the word seizure is nowhere to be found in the entire document, which is maybe the most surprising thing of all. I agree, not in the PICO thing, so not addressed at all. Now, you talk about those AHA, ASA recommendations, and you said the, the high seizure risk. So what are things, what are like patient-specific factors that might put someone in that high seizure risk category? So the things that they highlight are um, the, the features that they state that are high risk are a ruptured MCA aneurysm, a high grade subarachnoid hemorrhage, also having ICH, hydrocephalus, or a cortical infarction may make the patient high risk. And so, you know, their recommendation ultimately would be only prophylaxing those patients that have those high risk features. What do they say is our AED of choice? Do they comment on the on the agent we should be using for seizure prophylaxis? <laughs> this is a good one because they tell us what not to do. <laughs> so there's no AED of choice 
but they state that phenytoin should be avoided when um, starting for seizure prophylaxis as it has been associated with excess morbidity and mortality in this specific patient population. So we've talked a lot about things to try to prevent complications or adverse effects. That's been a lot of what we've talked about thus far. But now let's talk about, you know, almost that second to worst case scenario, which is the patients have like cerebral vasospasms or delayed cerebral ischemia. And when, when we're treating that, all right, we, in one corner, we have vasodilation. In another corner, we have hypertension. So who, who wins the battle between those two treatments when we're treating that ultimate complication of delayed cerebral ischemia? Yeah, you know, the, the neurocritical care guidelines really don't address the issue of management of cerebral vasospasm or delayed cerebral ischemia, except for when they're trying to identify a trigger of when to treat, right? So, you know, ultimately, they in that area, too, they had insufficient evidence to decide, you know, what is the trigger to starting these therapies, whether it's hypertension or, or vasodilation. And ultimately, they couldn't say, you know, is it just a change in clinical exam plus findings on, you know, neuroimaging, or is it just findings and exam change alone? And so ultimately, they, they couldn't provide a recommendation on that. So with this, we still have a big gap on what do we do for aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage patients when um, we need to act on their cerebral vasospasm and, you know, what is it that we do? Meaning when they do have cerebral vas- vasospasm, do we push their blood pressure with vasopressors or to induce hi- hypertension? Or do we start a vasodilator like Milrinone? Um, Do we have both on board? Do we press them and vasodilate them, right? And that's common practices that we see. I think another area to consider in this discussion of um, cerebral vasospasm is what about intraarterial medication administration of vasodilators like verapamil, nicardipine, and milrinone? We often think of, you know, intraarterial administration of medications, you know, they're given in the angiosuite, suite, and that's like a black box to most providers and even pharmacists because we really don't know what goes on. Um, but as pharmacists, we should really be thinking more critically about the indication for these intraarterial medications, the doses given, and then also what monitoring should occur afterwards, right? So many times these patients come out of the angiosuite very hypotensive, likely due to the IA administration. Um, so educating our providers on, you know, the adverse effects of these medications and how long we need to monitor and how closely. Now, the 2023 AJ and ASA guidelines address this kind of very narrowly, saying that both intraarterial vasodilatory therapy and cerebral angioplasty may be reasonable to reverse the cerebral vasospasm and to reduce the progression of the severity of DCI. But again, there's no real comparison of the two methods or even, you know, how to start, like starting one or the other or both. So I think there's a a big void of evidence in, in this area. And it makes sense then why this would be specific to where you, to your center, right? Because you may be giving things um, you know, intraarterially, for example. So that's going to be based on the provider preference and experience and some of those things. Um, I like that you, you said dilate and press. That almost sounds like a, uh, like a high school basketball play, right? We're going to, we're going to do full court. We're going to dilate and press ready break. So, um, (laughs) we talked about one of the biggest gaps in those neurocritical care guidelines is, um, seizures. Um, and the AHA ASA guidelines bailed, bailed them out there. Now, Obviously, the guidelines, the, they weren't able to cover all the topics. So what are some other big gaps that you'd like to see addressed um, in future guidelines or in some of those kind of review articles from Neurocritical Care Society like we talked about in the beginning? One thing we haven't really discussed is the management of fever. Now, we don't, we know, we think, let's say, that was kind of uh, brought up at the Neurocritical Care meeting this past week, but we think fever is bad for the brain. But we haven't really proved that yet. So in this particular patient population, is fever bad for the brain? And how should we control fever? So I think that's a big area. Um, And then another one, like we were just talking about, you know, what do we do in these refractory cerebral vasospasm patients, right? So they can go back, you know, every day to the angio suite um, to get their intraarterial medication. But ultimately, we have nothing that we can do for these patients. 
Um, as you kind of alluded to earlier, the only thing that has shown any benefit has been nimodipine. And that in itself can be questioned at times, whether, you know, it's altering the doses and things like that. So I think for me, the biggest gaps, not only in guidelines, but also just in data, I think would be um, those two areas. So there's there's definitely some research on the horizon in these patients. So what trials stand out to you that we should be on the lookout for? Which ones are you when you see that headline that's been published? You're you're going to really um, kind of dive in. Yeah, for me, I think there's there's two that I'm really excited about. So the first one is the finisher trial, and this is the fight inflammation to improve outcome after aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. So this is a German study evaluating the potential to use corticosteroids, specifically here dexamethasone, to prevent inflammation that contributes to delayed cerebral ischemia and therefore those poor outcomes um, that play like a major role in subarachnoid hemorrhage. So this is a, a multi-center trial that is going to be one of the first to confirm, um, you know, if dexamethasone could be helpful for a clinically relevant endpoint. Here they're looking at the MRS at six months after um, subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, and the dose of dexamethasone that they're using is actually eight milligrams three times a day for days one through seven post-bleed, and then eight milligrams a day for days eight through 21. So also an interesting kind of dosing regimen as well. Um, the other study that I, I think a lot of us are pretty excited about is the Sahara trial, and, and that is the aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage red blood cell transfusion and outcome um, randomized controlled trial. And so this is actually a Canadian initiated study that um, has sites in North America and Australia. And they'll be comparing a, um, a liberal red blood cell transfusion strategy. So here targeting um, administering red blood cells when the hemoglobin is less than 10 um, to a restrictive transfusion strategy, which would be a hemoglobin less than 8. Um, so if you think this actually like directly contradicts our earlier triple H therapy of hemodilution, right? So we know that that is bad, but now we think maybe having more red blood cells and oxygen carrying capacity could be beneficial for these patients, specifically when thinking about delayed cerebral ischemia. So their primary outcome is actually looking at MRS at 12 months post um, bleed. So definitely looking at our at our long term outcomes in both of those in both of those studies at at six and twelve months. Um, two more that stood out to me: the Picasso trial, right, looking at like early decompressive craniectomy, um, and then despite despite our thoughts that if it doesn't have a really cool acronym, it's not that important. There's a study looking at optimal intra op mannitol dosing and comparing kind of low normal and high 0.5 grams per kilo one and then 1.5. So interesting things here. Now, Case and I want to help the audience out. We want to help the listeners because we've talked about how there's a lot of gaps in research. There's need for future studies. So we got a lot of people listening that are involved in research and things. So, Kesey, what are some ideas that, um, what are ideas for future studies to help our care of these patients with aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage that can help? What are some things that'll help answer these these questions that we still don't know with these patients? What are some ideas? Give us give us some of your favorites here. So when thinking about this, I was trying to think from the pharmacist perspective, obviously, and things that we yep. could be involved in. And I, I think number one would be, um, are there certain drugs that are preferred in aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage for the acute blood pressure management, right? So focusing probably most impactfully on blood pressure variability. So are there medications that we can use to control blood pressure to a goal, so we don't know what that goal should be, um, but also preventing that variability that we know can be associated um, with worse outcomes. And then, you know, obviously the elephant in the room, we've talked a lot about this, is just the impact of altering those nimodipine doses. So those are some, that is something that we are intimately involved with at the bedside to the point of sometimes recommending that, that therapy. And so I think it's really important for us to understand the impact of that recommendation and, and knowing are we altering outcomes by a lowering the dose or holding nimodipine, um, things like that. Um, what about you? What, what did you come up with after these guidelines? 
So the the first one, number one, the nemotapine dosing one, you're exactly right. I think as pharmacists, a lot of us are not only we make those recommendations, I bet a lot of, of us were involved with the dosing and like monitoring or alteration protocol in general for what's done in those units. So uh, love that plug, put that number one in my book. Uh, the two things, I guess three things that stood out to me is blood pressure. Right? Should we be targeting MAP? Should we be targeting systolic? Is it a percent lowering? Is it a number? All these things that like, you know, we know blood pressure is important, but that's like really it that we like really know. So, you know, which of those is most important? Our AED stuff, like agent, dose, duration, right? Is it, you know, should we be doing lecosamide versus Keppra? That was a hot take. Don't worry. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm just saying like <laughs> researching and trying to find our preferred agent. And then do these patients require a unique strategy? Do we need to give them a unique anticoagulation reversal plan? Do they need a unique cerebral edema treatment strategy? I think that most of what we're knowing is that these patients are unique and they, they have differences compared to the standard general neurocritical care population. So I think kind of researching like, hey, what have we assumed or um, taken and applied from other literature and applied to our patients? And is that the best way? Right? And again, this is like, wow, we probably listed $100 million, $100 million worth of research studies and ideas here, but just things to, to kind of get off the point here a little bit. Um, I mean, Absolutely. Casey, this is a, a master class here, right? You've you've somehow covered two guidelines and things they missed. So for the <laughs> listeners, what would you say are some of like the, the biggest take-home points for the treatment of patients with aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage and their takeaway from these new guidelines that we, we highlighted? Yeah, I think there's a lot we didn't cover. So I would encourage <laughs> everyone to dig into to both of these uh, for themselves. But for me, I, I think the first, biggest takeaway is just the ambiguity and the lack of data that we have around, as you just mentioned, you know, optimal blood pressure, blood pressure targets in the acute phase of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage prior to securing the aneurysm. So, you know, they make some pretty bold statements that we don't have a number, but I think they do a good job of explaining that we still should control blood pressure. We just don't know how low, right, or how fast or, you know, how controlled to keep it. So I think that's probably one of my biggest I think the second would be, you know, these guidelines, the guidelines recommendations on anti-fibrinolytics, uh, it should not be overlooked. Um, this was a big change from the 2011 document. Um, and this 2023 guideline, they recommend against the use of anti-fibrinolytics to prevent rebleeding of the ruptured aneurysm in, in patients. This is a strong recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence. And we really should not see these agents used, in my opinion, especially since even the biggest trial, the ULTRA trial, demonstrated that the probability of an excellent functional outcome was lower in the treatment arm with TXA. So for me, that um, I don't think a lot of people see this in practice, but I think there are a few people who see this practice. And so just taking these guidelines back to your you know, group and having a good discussion about if you're using this agent appropriately. And then finally, I think we still do not know and, and we need to continue to encourage others to continue to ask good research questions, right? So especially focusing on delayed cerebral ischemia, secondary to cerebral vasospasm. Um, th there hasn't been any successful pharmacology or intervention since oral nemotapine studies in the late 80s. And we should really open our eyes to that and think about how far we have to go in this disease state, because especially that sequela of cerebral vasospasm and delayed, delayed cerebral ischemia can be what ultimately changes the outcomes for these patients. And so I just think we really need to think a little more critically about how we can improve the outcomes in these patients. That's a really good highlight that probably over half of the listeners weren't even born yet when the nemotapine positive study was published and released. So we are in desperate need of, of interventions to help improve outcomes and prevent those adverse effects. Very well said. Um, reach out to Casey at Casey May PharmD. Uh, Casey, I appreciate you coming back. Recurring guest. Um, thanks so much for, uh, for all you do and for passing on this, uh, this awesome knowledge to us and all the friends of the pod. We appreciate you. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Just hoping to inspire others to love this disease state as much as I do, you know? <laughs> I think um, if if they don't, if they don't love it after hearing this, there's little hope because uh, I think anyone listening to this is getting fired up for our for our management of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. So thanks again, Casey. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks again to uh, Casey. That was awesome. Uh, let her know what you think at Casey May Farm D. Let me know what you think at Pharmacy to Dose T O to Dose. Uh, Pharmacy to Dose at gmail.com if you want to shoot me a message. Um, the reference list is chock full of goodies this time. Uh, it's got the guideline links as well as multiple others. Uh, it's in the podcast episode description as well as the website PharmacyToDose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support and learn to earn CME online in qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials in the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.